Neuroplasticity is your brain's ability to rewire itself. Your brain is doing this every single second of every single day, whether you are conscious of it or unconscious of it. Your brain is constantly changing and reshaping its neural circuitry. The direction that that change goes in is ultimately up to you. Welcome to episode number one of Talk Nerdy to Me. My name is Alex Nashton, if we haven't met before, and from the moment I conceived of this podcast, I knew what I wanted the first episode to be on, which is the concept that has changed my life the most and inspired me to spend six years studying the human brain and nervous system, which is neuroplasticity. So since this is episode numero uno, I figured we would use it to get to know each other a little bit more. So you have a better understanding of what my background is, what brought me to creating this podcast for you, what inspired me to spend six years studying neuroscience. And then we're going to have a riveting conversation about what the hell neuroplasticity is and how you can use not just a conceptual understanding of it, but an applied real-world experiential understanding of it to facilitate change within your own life. So I want to back it up just a little bit and share with you that my journey to studying neuroscience came originally from a place of being extremely dissatisfied with my own brain and nervous system. All throughout my childhood and really heavily as a teenager, I struggled with mental health issues namely anxiety, but especially depression. And when I was finally able to articulate what was going on within my head and within my heart, the response that I was given was, you know, we're just a family of long-term sufferers. This is the way things are. Everybody's on Prozac. You can get on Prozac too if you want to. But I immediately rejected that methodology of treatment. In my mind, there had to be some other alternative. There had to be a better way. I was also at a point in my life as a teenager where I had zero personal responsibility for what I was experiencing internally. So I blamed everyone and everything around me as the source of my depression, as the source of my anxiety. And eventually it got to a point where it was so bad when I was 17 that I decided to finish high school early and constructed this really elaborate plan to effectively run away from home. So I finished high school early at 17, and I moved to New York City by myself. When I was living in New York City, I stumbled into a meditation teacher named Alan Finger, and he was co-teaching, co-facilitating with another teacher named Mona Anand. And they both taught meditation and mindfulness-based practices from a place that was heavily informed by science, specifically heavily informed by neuroscience. And it was in one of Alan Finger's meditation classes that I was introduced first to this concept of neuroplasticity. For those of you that are unfamiliar with that word, neuroplasticity refers to your brain's ability to rewire itself. And so for me, as a 17-year-old who had heard for years that we're just long-term sufferers, 
this is just the way things are. This is just the way you are. This is just the way that you're built. It's the way that you're always going to be. Learning about neuroplasticity was this awakening moment for me, this aha moment, this epiphany or light bulb moment. And not in a way that I felt, well, I did feel extremely mind blown, but my immediate reaction in that moment was just to start weeping because I felt such an immense source of relief. And I'm almost getting teared up just thinking about it now, thinking about that like little 17-year-old Alex who was like, oh my God, I don't have to struggle like this for the rest of my life. My brain is capable of change. I can feel something other than this vast darkness and emptiness and void that I had lived with up until that point in my life. And so that initiated a three-year journey of immersing myself completely into the world of mindfulness and meditative practices. I started a daily meditation practice that was honestly quite insane. (laughs) I look back on it now. I was meditating every single day for somewhere between 30 minutes to 45 minutes to an hour. I was taking as many yoga and yoga nidra classes as I possibly could, which at some point in the foreseeable future, we're going to do a podcast episode entirely on yoga nidra and something that we actually talk about in the episode with Kristen Leal, which is one of the first few episodes here. So make sure you listen to that if you want to learn a little bit more about yoga nidra. But just taking classes every day, sometimes multiple times a day. I got a job at a restaurant right across the street from the yoga and meditation studio so that I could go wait tables and then spend the rest of my day in study and in practice. I started training to become a teacher and facilitator of mindfulness and meditative practices and yoga practices. And while I was doing that formally, while I was learning how to teach, I was also self-studying neuroscience and reading just as many books as I could get my hands on. Podcasts weren't really a thing back then, so I didn't really have the option of listening to podcasts, but I'm sure if they existed, I would have listened to them. I was reading as many books as I could, watching YouTube videos because that was definitely a thing back then. And ultimately, I got to a point after three years of study that I asked my mentor, Mona Anand, is there some sort of teacher training that I can do just to learn more about neuroscience and neuroplasticity? Because this has facilitated so much change in my own life. After just a few years, I was able to pull myself out of my depression entirely I haven't experienced depression since then. My relationship with my anxiety is an ongoing process, but it's nowhere near as severe as it previously was. And I saw the remarkable benefits and healing power of mindfulness and meditative practices in my own life. And I wanted to study the brain and the nervous system. But, you know, in my sphere at that point in time, the only concept of education that I had was yoga teacher trainings and meditation facilitator trainings and studying one-on-one with a mentor or a teacher or I really don't like this word, but like with a guru. And so I asked my mentor at the time, Mona, I want to study neuroscience more. Who can I study with? What kind of teacher training can I take? And she just kind of looked at me and she was like, Alex, if you want to study neuroscience, you have to actually go to school. Like it might be time for you to actually get a formal education. And so I started looking into programs and I learned that UCLA in Los Angeles, California 
has a mindful awareness research center. And so I made the decision that I was going to move to California. I was going to apply to UCLA. My intention was to go there. And ultimately, I did. So I spent six years living in Southern California, studying the brain and the nervous system at UCLA and doing independent research on the relationship between mindfulness and anxiety disorders. So that journey of both being very invested in more Eastern philosophies and spiritual practices alongside my journey of understanding Western medicine, Western neuroscience, the way that the brain and the nervous system works enabled me to ultimately catalyze a tremendous amount of change within my personal life, not just in terms of my mental health, my relationship with anxiety and depression, not just getting to a point where I felt a cessation of those things, so a lack of depression or a lack of anxiety, but I noticed that I was able to apply the things that I had learned to every other facet of my life in order to improve them. My romantic relationship started getting better. My friendship started getting stronger. My familial relationships, my relationship with my parents, with my brother, with my sister started getting better. My relationship with money started getting better. I started looking at all of the ways in which I was in dysfunctional or unhelpful thought patterning with my finances, with career, with my relationship to being a teacher and a leader, with vulnerability, with public speaking, with pretty much every other aspect of my life and using the things that I had learned both within the mindful and meditative community as well as within the neuroscientific community to slowly start to mold and manipulate myself into being the woman that I had honestly never had in my own life as a role model. You know, when I was this little 17-year-old waitress, I didn't have a role model for the kind of woman that I wanted to become. I had known women that were phenomenal teachers, phenomenal leaders, individually really good at relationships or really confident or really vulnerable or really adventurous. But I didn't have one singular woman in my life who embodied everything that I wanted to become. So I made this role model up in my own head. And I started asking myself whenever I would have to make a decision, you know, if I was as confident as this imaginary future Alex that I had envisioned, what would I do right now? If I was somebody who had boundaries in a relationship, if I was somebody who was not codependent, what would I do? If I was someone who was motivated, who was disciplined, who was ambitious, who was compassionate to herself and to others, how would I behave in this situation? How would I show up? How would I think? What thoughts would be running through my head if I was this highest and best version of myself? And what happened over time is that it went from being this conscious, intentional, at times grueling choice that I had to make to act in alignment with my future self rather than my past self, that eventually it just became second nature. And I feel like at this point in my life, I've been able to evolve into the role model that I never had. Now, I'm not by any means perfect, and there's still a lot of shit that I am working on at this point. But I really do attribute the, the information that I've accumulated over the last 10 years of studying Western and Eastern philosophies, Western medicine and Eastern philosophies, 
to becoming the woman that I had always wanted as a role model. And so my intention in creating this podcast is to share with you not only the the practical, pragmatic tools and skills that I've learned and have used personally, but also to have conversations with other teachers and leaders and experts within the scientific and spiritual fields on how we can best enact change in our own lives. So I'm right here in the weeds with you. I want to be learning through this podcast just as much as I want to be teaching. And so on that note, I think this is probably a good time for us to transition into talking about that concept of neuroplasticity, because it really is at the epicenter of everything we're going to be talking about here on Talk Nerdy to Me. So again, if you've never heard neuroplasticity before, it refers to your brain's ability to rewire itself. And your brain is doing that every single second of every single day. Whether you are conscious of it or unconscious of it, your brain is constantly changing and reshaping and reorganizing its neural circuitry. I'm going to pause right there and break down what neural circuitry is, because I know that that's a word that's been thrown around a lot within the modern wellness community, and most people don't actually know what that entails, neural circuitry. So neural circuitry is basically synonymous with neural pathways. Your neural pathways are these long strings of interconnected neurons. And these connections between neurons are the things that are changing when we talk about your brain rewiring and reorganizing itself. Your neurons, just to zoom in even more, are the cells of your brain and your nervous system. And they're really unique when we compare them to any other cell within the body. You know, they're not like liver cells and kidney cells and skin cells that can be constantly regenerating themselves. So our neurons, we're, we're basically born with the only number of neurons that we'll ever, ever have. Aside from a few distinct regions of the brain, like the hippocampus, the olfactory bulb, so the part of your brain that's responsible for memory, the part of your brain that's responsible for processing smell, and then your amygdala, the part of your brain that's responsible for your fear response, your, your body's kind of danger and alarm signal, the rest of your brain isn't really capable of creating new neurons, which is one of the reasons why traumatic brain injury or spinal cord injuries can be so dangerous and devastating and lethal because once your neurons are dead, they're dead. You don't get to create new ones other than in these few distinct regions of the brain. That ability to create new neurons is a phenomenon that we call neurogenesis. And again, it's very, very limited in terms of the entire scope of your brain. So once your neurons are gone, they're gone. You hit your head too hard, you lose some neurons. You don't get a good night's sleep, you're going to lose some neurons. Are doing a lot of drugs, drinking a lot of alcohol, eating a really shitty diet, all of those things are capable of killing neurons. So we want to be participating in day-to-day lifestyle habits that preserve the longevity of the neurons that we do have because once we kill them off, that's it. We're dunions. We're toast. We don't get to make any more. However, the neurons that we do have available to us, of which we as adults have about 80 billion of them. 
Each of those 80 billion neurons is capable of making up to 10,000 connections each. And I'm going to say that one more time because the number is truly mind-blowing. As adults, we have approximately 80 billion neurons within our brain and our nervous system. And each one of those neurons is capable of making up to 10,000 connections each. Those connections, the strings of interconnected neurons from one neuron to the next to the next to the next, those are your neural pathways. And those are the things that are capable of changing, of making connections. And then we call it pruning apart when the connections dissipate. If we were to like really, really zoom in from the macrocosmic conceptual to the microcosmic, let's talk about what those neurons would look like. So if you were to look at a neuron under a microscope, they kind of look like these little weird octopus or tree-like figures. So you can think about, you know, the leaves of the tree, the branches of the tree at the top, and then a long trunk, and then at the bottom there are roots. So the branches of that tree, the leaves, are called dendrites. And then the roots of that tree-like figure are called your, your axon terminal or your terminal boutons. I'm pretty sure they're called terminal boutons. They might be called terminal buttons. It looks like terminal buttons when you look, <laughs> when you look at how it's written. But the very first um, professor I ever had that explained this to me called them terminal boutons. And I think he might have had a French accent. I'm not entirely sure. But my entire experience within the scientific field call them terminal boutons. So we have the branches of the tree, the dendrites, the roots of the tree, the terminal boutons. And those are the things that are actually making the connections from one neuron to the next, to the next, to the next. Now, while we're not capable of creating new neurons within most parts of the brain and nervous system, our axon terminals, the terminal boutons, and then the dendrites are capable of changing. So we can grow new dendrites. We can grow new terminal boutons. We can strengthen and fortify the branches of that tree. So if you think about like a young little sapling, this like twiggy little tree, it's very pliable and flexible as a youngin. But then as it starts to get older, it gets thicker and thicker and firmer and, and stronger and capable of supporting more branches and more leaves. And in this analogy, more connections. So if we were to zoom out a little bit again from the microcosmic to the macrocosmic, looking at entire neural pathways, there are really one of three ways that our neural pathways are capable of changing. And I usually like to preface this by saying that it, it's not so much that there are three as much as there's like two and then a little asterisk or two and a half almost. So from moment to moment, your neurons, your neural pathways are changing their connections. And that's always happening in one of two ways. You're either going to be creating a new neural pathway or alternatively, you're going to be reinforcing and perpetuating an old one. And I'll say that one more time. From moment to moment, you are always either going to be creating a new neural pathway or alternatively, you're going to be reinforcing and perpetuating an old one. So that change is taking place both through the things that you experience in your external world 
and the things that you experience internally. So externally, what that means is every book that you read, every movie that you watch, every neuroscience-based podcast that you listen to is either going to be creating a new neural pathway through helping you learn something entirely new, or it's going to be reinforcing an old one. So if you are somebody who loves neuroscience, who has listened to a bunch of podcasts on this topic, who has read a ton of books, this may be old information for you. But hearing it again is still changing your brain via reinforcing the neural pathways in your brain that are associated with concepts such as neuroplasticity and neuroscience. If you are a total newbie to topics like this, then this might be the first time that you're hearing something to this effect and you are essentially going to be creating a new neural pathway, learning about neuroplasticity for the very first time. Internally, Every thought that we think, every emotion that we experience, every time we project our minds into memories of the past or into anticipatory thoughts of the future, we are also changing and reshaping and reorganizing our neural circuitry. So internally, what that means is every time we revisit a memory from the past, every time we think about it over and over and over again, we're going to be strengthening the connections of the neurons associated with that memory, making it stronger and stronger and stronger. Every time we have a novel idea, a new insight, a new emotional experience, we're going to be creating a new neural pathway associated with that thought, associated with that insight, associated with that idea. So from moment to moment, this change is constantly taking place. You are constantly either reinforcing an old pattern or creating an entirely new one. What that means is you don't get a free pass. If you are having really self-judgmental, really self-deprecating, really shameful, really hypercritical thoughts, you don't get a free pass on that. They all count. They all matter. And they're all going to be creating new pathways or reinforcing old ones. So I think what this leaves me with, at least, and what I hope it leaves you with, is a tremendous amount of personal responsibility for the direction that your mind is going in and the direction that your thoughts are going in. Because every single one of them makes a difference in terms of how your brain is going to morph and evolve in the future. What this inspired for me when I first learned about it was a form of self-inquiry and a form of self-reflection and introspection where I started to get really, really disciplined and curious with what my thoughts were doing from moment to moment and started asking myself the questions repeatedly throughout the day of where is my mind right now? Where are my thoughts? What am I thinking about? And is it useful? Is it helpful for me to be thinking about this thing for the fifth or the 57th time today? And when the answer was no, which it often was when I was not in such a great headspace, having to do the challenging work and at times confronting work of redirecting my attention elsewhere, whether that was to more positive and helpful thoughts that I wanted to ingrain into new patterns, or whether it was simply to the present moment as a way to disrupt 
the previously ingrained patterning that I no longer found to be useful. So that's the little number three asterisk way that our neural pathways can change. It's not just that we can create new ones or reinforce and perpetuate old ones, but through our neglect, the previous patterns that we've cultivated will start to prune apart and weaken. What that means is every time you are disrupting your thought patterns, when you redirect your attention elsewhere, or when you simply become preoccupied with something else and aren't in the process of actively remembering, those neural pathways will begin to weaken. And I'll give you an example from my personal life. I grew up in upstate New York, very close to Montreal, Canada. And in high school and middle school, I took almost six years of French class. At a certain point, I actually became pretty good at speaking French. And then after I lived in New York City and moved to California, I didn't practice or utilize the French language for almost 10 years. I can't speak a lick of French now beyond bonjour. This is a concept that we'll refer to in the neuroscience community as use it or lose it. When you either intentionally or unintentionally neglect certain neural pathways, they will begin to weaken and prune apart. They'll begin to dissipate. So what that means is your brain is absolutely capable of healing its negative patterning through your intentional choice to redirect your attention elsewhere. Now, when I'm teaching about this, I always like to give a little disclaimer that, you know, when it comes to really challenging emotions and really challenging emotional experiences like anger and rage and sadness and grief, it actually doesn't behoove us to bypass those emotional experiences. We have to be willing to feel the depth of them in order for our nervous systems to actually move on. When we try to bypass emotional experiences, we'll actually dramatically increase our body's stress response and we'll only further get stuck in them. So there is this process of acknowledging like what is here for me right now? What thoughts are here for me right now? What emotions are here for me right now that need to be felt and experienced? And once the shelf life of that emotional experience has ended, of which I should mention, our emotions only have a biological longevity of 90 seconds. It only takes 90 seconds for the chemical reaction associated with emotions to course through your brain and bloodstream and then ultimately be diffused and filtered through your kidneys and ultimately excreted. So beyond 90 seconds, any emotion that's continuously playing out in your head is usually a result of your continued attention on that topic. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't give yourself permission to feel what you feel, but there is a huge value in being with the emotions that present themselves, giving them the opportunity to be felt to their fullest depth, and then in due time, when it's appropriate, really encouraging yourself to continue forward and move on. So just to reiterate, again, there are three ways that your neural pathways are going to be changing. You're either going to be creating a new one, reinforcing an old one, or weakening an old one through intentional or unintentional neglect of it. 
from moment to moment, you have an equal opportunity to either create a new pathway or reinforce an old one. But just because you have an equal opportunity to do one of those two things doesn't mean that that's what your biology is compelling you towards. Your brain wants to be helping you out. It wants to be wiring and rewiring itself for maximum efficiency. And it requires more resources to create a new pathway than it does to just use an old one. You can think of it like walking through the woods. You know, the path that is taken by other people, the path that's been walked the most, is the one that's easiest to travel down. It's the same with water. It's the path of least resistance. Water wants to take the path of least resistance, and so do our brains. They want to be using minimal amount of resources in the form of oxygen, glucose, sodium, potassium, all of these minerals and vitamins in an effort to maximize efficiency, in an effort to make our lives easier. So even though we have an equal opportunity from moment to moment to create a new pathway or reinforce an old one, our biology will always prefer to go down the path of least resistance to participate in an old pattern rather than creating and forming a new one. And it does this because it loves us and it wants to be making our lives easier. You know, you can think about the very first time you ever learned how to drive a car, right? There's so much focus. There's so much pressure. The stakes are very, very high. You have to know exactly how to use the steering wheel and the gas pedal and the brakes and how to shift gears. And it requires a lot of attention and effort. And then after a certain point, it becomes second nature. It becomes this thing that you can do unconsciously. Your brain can go on autopilot while your body, the nervous system, the peripheral nervous system can just kind of fill in and take over and do it with minimal conscious intentional effort on your part. And that is ultimately the goal. Our brain wants to be doing as much as it possibly can on autopilot in an effort to make our lives easier. Where this becomes problematic is when the patterns that we've repeated, the thought patterns that we've participated in, the emotional patterns we've participated in, the physical habits and patterns that we've adopted are not actually useful or helpful to us at this point in our lives. So most of us are not raised in and grow up in communities that foster a level of self-awareness that is essential to challenging these internal and external patterns and habits that we are participating in. Most of us, for most of our lives, are kind of functioning in the passenger seat of our own minds, where our previously ingrained patterns and habits are in the driver's seat running the show we're watching everything go by us, but we're not aware that we have autonomy and power and control to step over and take the wheel. So one of the most important, if not the most important component to changing our neural pathways, to really intentionally facilitating the kind of rewiring that we desire to become the people that we want to be is self-awareness. Self-awareness is the requisite. And that's something that is fostered through things like 
meditation, which at this point you all know has been an integral part of my own journey. Going to therapy, also been an integral part of my own journey and one that I recommend all of you do as well. You know, therapy, the value of therapy is that it gives us the opportunity to be in a safe relationship where someone can reflect back to us the thought patterns, the emotional patterns, and the physical patterns that we're participating in that may no longer be useful to us, that we may not be able to see inside of ourselves. Things like journaling, things like introspection, self-reflection, and, and you know, beyond just a therapeutic relationship or having a coach, having just a really solid community, having safe relationships in your life with people that you love and trust to see you clearly as you are, who are unafraid to reflect back to you the things that they're seeing can be a really, really important catalyst in fostering a greater level of self-awareness. Because once you have self-awareness, you have power, you have choices. You get to make the decision whether you want to continue cruising along in the passenger seat or whether you want to step back into the driver's seat again and start to take direction and harness the constantly changing nature of your brain and your nervous system. Because that change, as I mentioned over and over again so far in this episode, that change is happening all the time, whether you want it to or not. So choosing to be in a state of not acknowledging the reality of what's happening, being in a state where you are unaware of the change that's occurring is also a choice to a certain extent to become more and more and more deeply ingrained in the person that you previously have been and the patterns and the habits that you've previously been participating in. So just to reiterate again, what you're thinking about, what you're feeling, what your mind is doing from moment to moment is really, really important. It does actually matter because what you are choosing or not choosing, unconsciously or consciously, thinking about and putting your thoughts and attention on is creating neural circuitry that subsequently informs your future self. So what determines the thoughts that spontaneously occur to you, and you all can't see me right now, but I'm doing air quotes around spontaneous, what spontaneously occurs to you in moments of idleness, in moments where you're not really thinking about anything at all, you're just kind of waiting in line at the grocery store or laying on the beach or trying to meditate, is not just a result of whatever your mind can possibly muster up and throw at you, but it's actually a result of what you have previously given weight to in the past. So the previous neural pathways that you have strengthened through what you've chosen to pay attention to. Your brain is basically this massive, phenomenal supercomputer in this way and works very similarly to search engines like Google or Bing or even social media platforms like Instagram, whereby the things that it's showing you on your home screen when you open up the page are not just random. They're very carefully curated and selected based on what you've paid attention to previously and a myriad of other demographic information that the internet has collected on you but it's not this random thing. It's all designed to get you to click on it, to pay more attention to it, to spend more and more time on the apps 
or in the search engines, Googling and Googling and Googling. Our brains work in the same way. Again, because they love us and because they want to be wiring us for maximum efficiency, what they spontaneously reveal to us in moments of idleness is a result of what we've given weight to in the past. So what we've double tapped on Instagram, what we've liked, what we've saved, the thoughts that occur to us as spontaneous in moments of idleness are not random. They're a result of this algorithmic nature of our brain. And in the same way that you can't stop your home screen on your phone from revealing to you the latest news with the Kardashians or really cute cat videos, you can't stop your thoughts from happening in the first place. When they come, they're like a wave. There's nothing that you can do to hold them back. But what you can do is change how you respond to them, the level of intentionality and awareness that you bring to receiving each one, how long you choose to spend watching one video over and over and over again, and subsequently what you choose to do with that response, with how long you pay attention to it, is the thing that changes the entire algorithm in terms of what it shows you in the future. So I'll give you an example from my personal life based on social media. But <laughs> during the pandemic, I spent a few solid days being like, I'm just going to type in the search bar really good chocolate chip cookie recipes so that the only thing that my algorithm is showing me now are cookie recipes and really cute puppy videos. And that's it. I don't care about Justin Bieber. I don't care about the Kardashians. I do care about Andrew Huberman, so I'm going to make sure I'm spending a lot of time on his page and effectively rewiring my social media algorithm to show me more of that stuff and less of the stuff that I don't care about. It's the same thing with our brains and our nervous systems. We have to cultivate a level of self-awareness so that we have the ability to choose what direction we want to be going in and ultimately change and recalibrate the entire structure of the algorithmic nature of our brain. So I want to explain this concept to you using another analogy that might be helpful beyond just social media algorithms and beyond trees and tree branches, which is that, you know, as I mentioned before, I grew up in upstate New York in the icy tundra. It gets really, really snowy and cold in the winter. And I'm not just talking about a little bit of snow, like a little light layer of dust over the desert, like Southern California, where I also lived for so long. But I'm talking about, you know, when it would snow in the thick of winter, we would get several feet. And behind our local high school, there was this massive hill where everyone would go sledding. Now, for those of you that are tuning in from Southern California who have lived there your entire life, who are very unfamiliar with what it's like to experience the icy tundra, <laughs> then this analogy may not resonate as much for you. But use your imagination. Bear with me. In the winter, we would go to this massive hill behind the high school. And right after a big snowfall, the snow would be kind of crunchy. So if you were to try to go sledding, you couldn't just hop on your sled and like fly down the hill. Instead, you would have to plunk your little butt down in your sled and kind of crunch it down into the snow and then use your hands and your feet to scoot your butt on this sled all the way down to the bottom of the hill. And it would require effort and 
that effort would be the thing that created an initial groove. It would create an initial track in the snow. And then you would have to haul your sled all the way up to the top of the hill again, plunk your little butt down in the exact same track, and use a little bit of effort, use your hands and your feet to scoot your way all the way down and deepen this groove and smooth out this groove. And then you would go back up to the top of the hill and you would do it again and you would do it again and you would do it again. And every single time you would go down the hill, it would require less and less and less effort. It would become more automatic. It would become more fluid and it would become faster. It would become easier to go down this track, to go down this groove, to go down this neural pathway than the previous time that you visited it. Until eventually it gets to the point where this track is so glassy, this track is so smooth that if you're like fooling around at the top of the hill, not paying attention, talking to your friends and you trip and you fall onto the sled and you have no conscious control or effort over the speed at which this sled is flying. So I use that analogy to illustrate that it requires biological effort. It requires resources. It requires energy to create a new pathway. But once that pathway is established, every single time you go down it, it gets a little bit easier and a little less effortful. So we have this biological compulsion. We have this proclivity to gravitate towards our previously ingrained patterns rather than creating new ones. And when we get to a certain point with some sort of pattern, it becomes so highly automated that we will fall down these rabbit holes. We will fall down these downward spirals in moments of idleness and feel like we ultimately have no control over it. This is the reason why practices that foster a greater level of self-awareness are incredibly important because self-awareness is a neural pathway. When you spend time in active contemplation, in active self-reflection, in active meditation, it's more and more likely that you will spontaneously, air quotes, not so spontaneously, wake up in these moments of high-level automaticity and yield a greater ability to disrupt yourself and stop yourself and exercise choice rather than feeling like you're completely out of control and being dragged around by the patterns of your previously ingrained neural pathways. In my own life, the practices of self-awareness, of mindfulness, of meditation, of therapy, of journaling were all a really critical part of getting control over my own mind. And when I talk about neuroplasticity, a lot of, you'll notice a lot of the examples that I use are cognitive. They have a lot to do with thought patterns, but it's not exclusively thought patterns that are represented in our neural pathways, but also our muscle memory, our physical patterns, our behavioral patterns. When you pull up your iPhone and putting your passcode to unlock it faster than you can consciously remember, that's reflected in a neural pathway. Your neural pathways carry representations of every single aspect of how you think and how you feel and why you behave the way that you behave. So all of it is up for grabs in terms of change. All of it is capable of being rewired. So I share this with you today because for me, 
the biggest thing I felt when I learned about neuroplasticity was relief. And then I felt hopeful. I felt really hopeful that I was capable of changing. My mind was not a very fun place to live in before I started embodying these tools and these practices. I felt like I was just swimming in my own thoughts 24-7 in my head all day, every day. But I didn't even know enough to know that I could change it or that the content of my mind was malleable and shiftable. So again, just a quick recap of everything that we've covered today. Neuroplasticity is your brain's ability to rewire itself. Your brain is doing this every single second of every single day, whether you are conscious of it or unconscious of it. Your brain is constantly changing and reshaping its neural circuitry. The direction that that change goes in is ultimately up to you. But you can't actually facilitate any change if you're not aware of the fact that you have power and control in the first place. And if you aren't able to wake yourself up in these moments of automaticity and step on the brakes or redirect your attention elsewhere. This change is always happening through the things that you experience in your external world. So the people that you interact with, the conversations that you have, the books that you read, the movies that you watch, the podcasts that you listen to, which means that what you surround yourself with in your external environment is really, really important. You know, there came a day for me several years ago where I realized that I am not someone who can watch scary movies anymore or can watch horror films anymore because my baseline level of anxiety would be higher when I was subjecting my mind to those external experiences. Likewise, the people that you surround yourself with, the quality of the friendships and relationships in your life are also changing your brain and changing the contents of your thoughts. So who you choose to surround yourself with is super, super important. And again, in my opinion, most important of all, what you're choosing to do with your thoughts, what you're choosing to do with your attention is number one. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't actually matter how many amazing people you've surrounded yourself with, how many books you've read, how many courses you've taken, how many podcasts you've listened to. If your inner monologue is one of self-judgment, of self-animosity, of blaming other people for all of your problems, for no personal responsibility, no self-accountability, no self-compassion or kindness. It's you and yourself all day, every day. So that is going to create an even greater change than anything that exists out there in the world. And again, you're always going to be changing those pathways through either creating new ones, reinforcing old ones, or weakening old ones through intentional or unintentional neglect from them. So what change is taking place is ultimately up to you. And I hope that you are at least feeling a little more inspired today to challenge yourself and look at your thought patterns, look at the behavioral patterns that you're participating in and ask yourself those questions like little 17-year-old Alex did of, is this useful? Is this actually useful? 
is lingering on this thought, is lingering in this emotion well past its expiration date, moving my brain and moving my mind and moving myself and my life in the direction that I want to be going in? Or is it just keeping me stuck in the past and in a version of myself that I no longer want to be? And when the answer is no, it's not helpful. It's not useful. This is not who I want to be. To start to take these small, daily, actionable steps to changing it, to creating that role model for yourself of who do I want to become and how do I think and feel and behave in alignment with that person rather than who I historically have been. And if you are somebody who is struggling to do that on your own, recruit some support for yourself, go to therapy, get a coach, create friendships in your life where you are willing to have uncomfortable conversations with the people that you love and ask them for feedback to ask them, is there something you're seeing in me that I'm not seeing in myself? Can you point out to me when I'm participating in a pattern or a habit that is really self-destructive or unhealthy? I want to leave you today with a super nerdy neuro nugget of inspiration that I actually first learned from Kristen Leal. And if you haven't listened to Kristen's episode of the podcast, I highly recommend that you do so. But I learned this from Kristen Leal about 10 years ago, which is the work of a neuroscientist at UC San Diego named Vyas Ramachandran, who basically outlined all of this different information around, you know, the 80 billion neurons that we have as adults, the 10,000 connections that each of those neurons is capable of creating, and basically discovered that there are more potential connections between neurons in the human brain than there are atoms in the observable universe. So what is going on inside of our heads has more potential than anything else that is in existence. There is no ceiling to the change that you are capable of creating inside of yourself. On that note, thank you so, so much for listening in today. Thanks for staying with me all the way until the very end. I hope that this conversation leaves you feeling a little more excited and inspired by your nervous system's capacity to change. And more than anything else, I hope it leaves you feeling the way that it helped me feel 10 years ago when I first learned about it, which was hopeful and relieved. The way that you are today is not the way that you always have to be. If you loved this episode, help us get it into the ears of more listeners like you by leaving a five-star review and subscribing on whatever platform you're listening on. When you share this episode on Instagram and tag me at Alex underscore Nashton for the month of June 2023, you'll be entered into a giveaway for the chance to win a 90-minute long coaching call with me. Each episode that you share and tag me in will lead to one entry, which means that you can share them all. This podcast, baby, is a labor of love for me. I'm not making any money on it. I just want to help get this life-changing and helpful information into as many brains as humanly possible. Last but not least, I want to thank Adam Russell for tirelessly supporting me physically and emotionally in the creation of this podcast. Adam is responsible for stringing together the epic intro and outro music, monitoring the sound quality, and is also the person I've called in the middle of the night, I can't even tell you how many times, when I've been freaking out about this podcast. Adam, you are a lifelong friend and a musical genius. I am so, so grateful to have you in my life, and I love you tremendously.